Hello, I'm Elena Delval, and this is the Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations Podcast. My guest today is Michelle Colopy, who is Program Director at the Pollinator Stewardship Council. We will discuss honey and beekeeping. Michelle has held her current position since March of 2013. Her father was a beekeeper in southeast Ohio. She keeps honeybees in the city and has replaced her crabgrass front yard with pesticide-free pollinator flowers for her honeybees and native pollinators. Her nonprofit experience includes work in the performing arts, housing and homelessness, foreclosure prevention, community development, and health and wellness. Michelle, welcome. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Let's go back to a really basic concept. We've all tasted honey. We've all had something with honey. We've used it to sweeten teas and desserts. But what exactly is honey? Is it sugar? Well, honey is actually a mix of uh, of chemicals in a sense. It is the uh, delicious uh, sweet nectar from plants, from flowering plants that pollinators and pollinators include honeybees as well as hummingbirds because we all know hummingbirds like um, a lot of the tube flowered plants and they drink the nectar from those plants. So these the nectar has a high sugar content in order to attract these pollinators and provide energy to these pollinators. So it is a mix of natural sugars, certainly that the plant creates, and it also has certainly moisture in it um, because the plant creates that nectar by pulling water up from the soil and creating this delicious nectar within the bloom of the plant in order to attract the pollinators. So it is a, um, it's created by the plants, and it does have a natural sugar base in order to attract those pollinators. Is all honey made by bees? Well, the honey that humans eat is only made by honeybees. So while uh, bumblebees make some honey, they have little honey pots, it is not something that humans, it's not enough honey for humans to um, consume, and it's really consumed by those bumblebees as they make their nests and feed the next generation of bumblebees. So honeybees, hence their name, are the only pollinators that make honey for humans to eat. You mentioned hummingbirds as being pollinators, and of course we know there are many pollinators in addition to the honeybees and the bumblebees, right? Right. What do the hummingbirds do with that pollen, and does it have anything to do with the honey that we eat? Well, with hummingbirds, they really are just kind of the vector for plant reproduction. So the plants uh, evolved with the pollinators, attracting those pollinators to the food source of the nectar, and then the hummingbird will get that pollen. It will brush up against the feathers of the hummingbird, or with pollinators, the different bees, it will um, get stuck onto the bees. And then when those bees or the bird goes to another flower, they spread that pollen. This is how the pollinators help these plants reproduce. For those plants that the pollen does not blow on the wind, uh, you, they rely on the insects and the birds and some mammals. Um, again, if they have fur, like uh, even mice will sometimes eat a flower and get the pollen stuck on them, and then they go to another one, and they're spreading that pollen. They're spreading the seed of one flower to another so it can reproduce. Do the hummingbirds contribute to honey? They do not at all because they don't make honey. So the hummingbirds simply... Um, really go for specific types of plants because they have that longer tongue. They have the bill. So they like a lot of the brightly colored flowers, especially red flowers, which is why hummingbird feeders are red. And some bees don't like those flowers because they have to go too deep into the flower to get the nectar. And they don't want to get trapped and they don't want to drown. So those flowers really evolved with hummingbirds for the hummingbirds to do uh, the pollination. The same with out in the southwest, you have some bats that pollinate specific flowers because of the nature of the plant and the bat and their relationship. So you'll have plants in North America 
that are uh, native plants and the native pollinators will actually pollinate and prefer to pollinate those native plants. Honeybees are from Europe and from Asia, so they know European and Asian plants. So honeybees do not pollinate every plant here in North America, which is why we vitally need our native pollinators to ensure that we continue to have our native plants. You mentioned the hummingbird extracting the nectar with its tongue. Mm -hmm. Um, Tell us a little bit more about that, because honeybees also use their tongues. We all think that it's the beak, but it's not the beak, right? Right, it isn't. You know, all of these things have, I'll call it a big slurpy straw. So, like with honeybees, you would be surprised how long their, their tongue is, in a sense. And it uncoils and goes down into the nectar. And the same with hummingbirds. And I'm sure anyone can look up on the Internet some pictures of um, hummingbirds. But when you see the length of the flower, that's why their beak is so long. They have to get close enough so they're stuffing their head in there. And then their, their tongue extends so that they can uh, lap up or, or suck up the uh, nectar. But it's completely different structures of flowers. There's uh, one flower, I cannot remember the name of it, that um, the the nectary is really deep in the flower. And native pollinators love it. They know that the uh, pistils or the stamen of the flower is going to bean them on the head with pollen so that they make, the plant wants to make sure that bee is going to leave with some pollen. So in order for that that bee to reach the nectary, they know they're going to get beamed on the head first. And that's okay because the nectar is what they want. And that way the plant and the bee have all worked it out. Well, honeybees don't like to get beamed on the head. So they're not going to pollinate that native plant. It's only those native pollinators that will put up with the idiosyncrasies of our native plants. The nectar that the pollinators, including the honeybees, extract from the plants, is, is that, does that start out being sweet? Well, it's sweet and it has a floral scent that the bees can smell. And certainly, I believe they've got like over 200 um, scents that they can smell. And since the hive is run by pheromones, which are things that can be smelled, then that's how the hive is controlled, but that's how they find their their uh, hive mates is by the scent of the hive, and then that's how they find the different floral scents. You know, certainly I think many of us, if we go to something like a lavender field, boy, we will be inundated with the aroma of lavender, and that's from our really uh, – poorly constructed noses. <laughs> so we do not have the ability to smell things like bees and and, and that even dogs can smell and things. So the bees have these uh, a couple hundred receptors. They can smell all these things. So it's not necessarily the sweetness. It's that floral essence as well. And the sweetness comes from the when the bee collects some nectar, they take it back to the hive and each bee has its purpose in its life. Um, and it They start out as baby bees, and once they emerge out of the cell, then they become nurse bees, helping the next generation and feeding them and caring for them. And then in a few days or weeks, they move up to being a house bee, making sure things are cleaned and and making sure they get rid of pests. If, say, a a stray wasp would move in or something, they, they kill that wasp and drag it out. And each of these bees have their duties. So when a forager, which a bee becomes a forager toward about the last two, three weeks of its life, um, because they have to develop within the hive and and their duties and get strong enough. So when a forager comes back to the hive, they've collected nectar, they put it into their honey stomach, they pass it off to a house bee. So they empty their honey stomach into the house bee's honey stomach, who then goes up onto the frame, the wax honeycomb frame, and then they deposit that nectar into a cell. Now, the little amount of nectar that that bee collects, it's like a twelfth of a teaspoon that each bee collects. They, they, So that one cell might have three, four different plant nectars in it because their goal is to just fill up the cell with nectar. And then the bees will fan over the, the uncapped cells to evaporate some of the moisture which then, by evaporating the moisture, you're concentrating the sugars. 
Does the nectar taste good to the bee? Does the bee even eat that nectar? Or is it just going into this bee, uh, I'm sorry, into this honey, honey stomach that you were talking about? Well, certainly they do have to eat while they're um, out and foraging because they need that sugar, those carbohydrates, to, to fly three to five miles just to find food. So they will eat certainly along the way, but they know their purpose is to go out and collect nectar and take it back to the hive. They also will collect pollen, which is providing protein and amino acids. So some of that pollen that they um, they do pick up just by collecting the nectar because pollen is typically sticky. And the their little hairs on honeybees and many native pollinators, their little hairs, and it gets electrostatically charged. So when they are around the plants, uh, they will pick up the pollen. It will just kind of jump out to them. Well, kind of like when we walk on the um, the carpet with socks and there's dry air in the house and we get that static electricity buildup. It's the same with bees. So that the pollen kind of jumps off the flower to them a bit, but it wants to adhere to the little hairs on their body. They will stuff that pollen onto um, sacks on their legs and uh, take that pollen back with them. They will also... Well, they don't eat so much of the pollen out at the flower. They're really going for the that quick buzz from the sugar to keep flying around. But the pollen then is taken back to the hive, and that's fed to the next generation as well as put away for winter uh, stores. So the honeybees leave the hive, and a floral scent makes them chase the honey scent for somewhere between three and five miles to find a flower or flowers? Yeah, flowers, because it has to be a rather large expanse to get them excited. So, and the thing is, you will have scout bees who will also go out and go, okay, what's in bloom right now? Where's a big patch of it, which will provide us a lot of food. So, say with my front yard that I have in um, my home, I have it's all in pollinator habitat. So when the bees discover it, especially the honeybees, uh, they will go back to the hive. They will do what's called a waggle dance that gives directions based on the sun's uh, placement in the sky of where this field of wonderful food is. So they will convince the other bees and whoever dances the best convinces the other foragers, okay, we're going to go where you said and we're all going there. Um, sometimes they will bring back a sample of this is what I got and they go, okay, this smells really good. Let's all go. So that then you will have them come to that area that is in bloom, that the nectar, you know, it's not under a drought. So there's plenty of nectar um, and the bees will just really feast on everything that is in bloom in that area. So you do need to plant large expanses, you know, not just a potted plant here and there because they won't smell it or see it. It's not enough of an impact for the bees to really see. So you want those larger planting beds. You want crops of, you know, crop fields of clover or, um, you know, certainly lavender again, that that example. So the bees go for that big expanse that's going to maximize their opportunity to fly there, get the food, and fly back home. At any particular time, or run, for lack of knowing the terms, does the bee, does each bee go to one flower at a time or multiple flowers at a time? Oh, yeah, they bounce around because the world is built on diversity. Uh, the food system is built on diversity for every living creature. Nobody wants to just eat almond pollen and nectar for their entire uh, four or five weeks. It gets boring and it's unhealthy. The same with us. We're not going to just eat almonds for four and five weeks. We would not be healthy after that, simply because you're eating one thing and you're not diversifying and and providing a balanced nutritional diet of vitamins, minerals, and amino acids to yourself. So the same with bees. So they might find um, a field of uh, yellow clover and go, okay, we love this, but they are working that one for two weeks, and they go, okay, now we're bored. We need something else. So then they go over to um, some poppies or they're going over to the apple orchard. So you will, it's rare that you're going to get one sole thing for too long in the hive because it's not healthy for the bees. Now, in my father's apple orchard, we would have what we called apple honey um, because we pulled the frames off 
once the app, the frames out of the hive, once the apple bloom was done. So it's a, it's a good cause and effect that, okay, the honey that's in here is from the apple bloom, but also it's going to contain other wildflowers that are in bloom at that time. But the majority of floral source immediately to them was from the apple orchard. But you have to pull those frames off if the frames are capped and full of honey. You have to pull them out of the hive for the beekeeper to then be able to sell it as apple blossom honey. Otherwise, the majority of honeys really are a wildflower mix. And it is very difficult, again, to say that you just have uh, orange blossom honey or clover honey. You've got to, as a beekeeper, manage and, and understand when the blooms are going on so that you can manage when to pull frames of honey out of the hive so you know that you can sell it as a specific type of honey. How many trips does a honeybee make from the hive to collect nectar to bring back to the hive? Oh, my gosh. It is it is tens of thousands because, again, if they go out and each time they're out there, it's the twelfth of a teaspoon. So that, it, you know, to make I, – I, I'm confusing my numbers, but, you know, when they're flying – up to three to five miles, it can sometimes take hundreds of trips in order to make hundreds, if not thousands of trips, to make just a pound of honey. Because, again, you have to realize they're dehydrating, or they're a vat. Well, no, they're dehydrating, in a sense, the moisture in that nectar. And uh, this only takes place when there are flowers in bloom. Correct. They are collecting the nectar from the flowers in bloom to take back, and this is going to be a reserve of food for the rest of the year when there are no flowers in bloom. What are the time periods that we're talking about here? Well, it kind of depends on where you live. Now, here in North America, uh, the growing season, and with climate change, it's changing. Um, the growing season certainly is going to be different in the northeast as opposed to California, as opposed to the South. So that with beekeeping, say in my state, in Northeast Ohio, um, my bees have to have enough winter stores, because nothing is in bloom, from at least November until April. So they typically, bees will typically collect two-thirds more honey than they actually need. And that's the honey that beekeepers can harvest. But all beekeepers, all beekeepers leave their bees with plenty of winter stores. None of us are just stripping them of uh, honey and then letting them starve to death. No reputable beekeeper does that. And I know there's still that um, bad science that's out there that people say, oh, these beekeepers are horrible. They keep starving their bees. It's like We take off the honey because... One, they're making more than they need, and otherwise it would get full of uh, pests and diseases uh, if we did not take the honey off because it's a sweet product that anything else would go, this is good food. I'm going to winter up here because the bees are not paying attention to this extra box of honey at the top. They're down below eating that honey. So it's it makes sense as we manage our bees to pull off some of that honey. What is the life of a bee? How long does it live? Oh, it, not very long. Um, certainly in the summer, um, their lifespan's a little shorter since they work themselves to death. Uh, so they pretty much have a, a six-week to <clears throat> two-month, at the most, three-month lifespan, so that even in the winter, now many of those bees will slow down. They don't hibernate. They just kind of slow down. They eat less. They're not at risk out there flying around, and they will. those bees will last a couple of extra months. But they are also keeping the brood, the next generation, warm to emerge next spring. You talked about different duties in the hive. Are they all feeding from the same source? Are all the honeybees nourishing from the nectar? Uh, well, the nectar and the pollen, yes. So they also eat the pollen. Because I thought the pollen was just for the queen, no? 
No, it is not. No, the pollen is for everybody because that helps to also get them through the winter. The pollen is also mixed together um, and fed to the baby bees, the um, larvae that are developing. So the pollen is a very important source of food for all of the bees uh, as as well as nectar. What about the description of honey as a monofloral, so coming from a single type of flower. You were saying earlier that in nature it doesn't work that way. So how is it that we hear or we buy products that say that this is just lavender honey or acacia or orange blossom? How how do they do that? Well, they do it, you know, as I was saying, if, if you know, say, the apple blossoms or the orange blossoms are in bloom, you put your bees on that area. And if there is enough of that food source for them, they will go to that because it's an opportunity, it's in bloom, it's close to home, close to their hive, so they will work those orange blossoms. But after about two weeks, they're going to get tired of that, and they will want some diversity. So it it just behooves the beekeeper to constantly monitor their hives and when those bees fill up some some frames, some honeycomb with honey, and they've capped it, then they that beekeeper pulls out that honey with just the understanding and belief that, okay, they collected it off of orange blossoms, the orange bloom is still going on or it's nearly finished, I'll pull these frames off, it must be the orange blossom honey. Now, sometimes you, you can tell the, you can taste it. Um, you know, the, um, certainly the connoisseurs of honey can taste the differences. They can smell and taste the different floral properties of honey. Plus, you can always have the pollen tested and see what level of, um, pollen uh, is in that in that honey because there will be pollen in the honey as well Um, but you will always still have because again like any living creature we want diversity you will never something will be labeled that majority of it is from a monofloral source but there's always going to be other stuff in it too there will always be other plant sources there just will bees flying three to five miles yeah there's going to be other things a lot of people think that honey has health, healing benefits and properties, that it strengthens your immune system, that it cures burn wounds, and the list goes on. What would you tell us about that? Well, certainly I would have to, of course, give the caveat I am not a physician. I am not a medical researcher. However, I do know certainly the... Um, anecdotes um, about honey, and there certainly is more and more research that is looking at specialty types of honey, like the Manuka honey down in Australia and New Zealand, that uh, research has been done on Manuka and has examined and identified its antifungal, antibacterial um, qualities to it based on the Manuka plant. So the manuka plant itself had those properties within the nectar, and then when the bees made honey from it, that transferred to the honey. So there has been a lot of research on manuka honey, M-A-N-U-K-A, for your listeners who might want to look that up on the Internet. And certainly I encourage people to check um, with their doctor. You can always try some of these things yourself. I know I have. I, I don't like to say that you can use things for medicinal purposes because that is would be inappropriate for me. Um, certainly people have used it in the past of uh, putting certainly tea, uh, um, honey in some hot water and that can help with colds and uh, sore throats. You can certainly, I've, I personally have used honey on cuts to help it heal. There are also products made from um, the hive, whether it's using the propolis, which has antimicrobial, antibacterial qualities. Propolis is tree resin, actually, that the bees collect. And the bees will actually coat the inside of their hives in in the natural world. Bees will coat the inside of the hives with this tree resin, with the propolis, because it's helping the health of the hive. It's helping keep that hive healthy. So that even as a hive maybe grows in a tree trunk, that the propolis is always at the part of the hive. It's always surrounding area where the bees are working that hive um, on the inside. So there are a number of properties of the hive, not just honey, but also the propolis bees collect 
have been used for medicinal purposes. There's also a new um, field, in a sense, called apitherapy, A-P-I-T-H-E-R-A-P-Y, where people are using bee stings, the venom from bee stings, to help with things like arthritis and other pain. But you do have to have that certainly administered by a professional. And certainly if you're allergic to bee stings, you're not going to be using apitherapy. So there are a number of things that the medical world and other biologists are looking at of the value, the medicinal value of honeys, of products in the hive like propolis, as well as bee venom itself for things like um, arthritis. Some people like to eat not just the honey, but the honeycomb itself. Now, the times I've tried it, it it was waxy in my mouth. Tell us about that, would you? Well, certainly. The bees' wax is made by the bees. They have glands on their body that create, that makes wax. And, oh, it is so gorgeous when the bees make wax themselves. It is such a pretty color. And I prefer to have my bees draw out the wax themselves. I provide a blank foundation so that then they make the cells themselves because I find it to be a cleaner wax. Hell, it's so pretty. Uh, But mostly because it's a cleaner, healthier wax for the bees. When a beekeeper continues to use uh, a drawn-out frame of honeycomb from year to year, that honeycomb, because it's wax, hangs on to everything. So the wax cells are raising the next generation of bees. It might be the food pantry. All these tens of thousands of bees are walking across this wax frame. The beekeeper is pulling it out, extracting honey, maybe putting it back in. But this wax picks up everything that the bees bring in and the wind blows in to the hive. So the standard now in beekeeping is every three years you replace all of your frames because of pollution and because of pesticides. Now, even if my bees make their own wax, I personally would not chew on the wax, but that's because I don't want to chew on waxy stuff. It is wax. You're chewing on wax. But that wax is holding on to chemicals and pollution. Why do people think that it's extra healthy? I've seen people ask for it. I've seen it for sale in stores. I've been at a hotel where they served the honey on the plate with the honeycomb as a special treat. Right, because they're used to it, because that's how they got honey as a kid, Um, depending on your generation. And some people just think it is novel. Um, With my work in... Uh, trying to protect our bees from the impact of pesticides, I just would not. But that is, that's my personal um, viewpoint. Um, I also look at, again, it's wax. Uh, you know, you're not going to get any extra honey squeezed out of it by chewing the wax. Um, some bees, so it's, it's a marketing um, aspect. Certainly it looks pretty. This, you know you've cut it right out of the comb. I mean, beekeepers can actually buy a frame that has the rounds in it or squares so that the bees simply uh, build up the wax right in that shape so it's easy to take it right out of the hive. Um, But uh, um, at the same time, they could also lay a few eggs in that section because the queen is really uh, prolific. And then you might end up with a um, bee larvae or two in the wax. You never know. Hopefully not. Yeah, but you never know. So uh, I personally just don't like comb honey, but I'm not trying to slam the comb honey business because people do love it. But they must understand the wax does not have any health benefits for you. And that was what I was looking for. It doesn't taste good, and it doesn't yeah. have any nutritional benefits. It's it really just doesn't. kind of like uh, you're, you're going to end up chewing up whatever wax is left, and then you'll spit it out because, uh, you know, it, it doesn't provide anything for you. Now, beeswax itself, again, there's so many products you can make from the hive. You can, besides honey that the bees make, and they make beeswax, you can take that beeswax after you've extracted honey, you can melt it down, you can make candles, you can put it into body care because that beeswax certainly is a natural wax. It's much better than a petroleum-based wax. 
it is a natural beeswax that goes into hair care products, skin care products, health care products. Um, there's so many things you can do besides just make candles. Um, so it's a wonderful wax to use afterwards. Uh, and again, you also have the propolis products. And then people also will do what they call trapping pollen so that when the bees come back to the hive, uh, there's a little contraption you can put on the front of the hive, which kind of scrapes off the pollen. The pollen drops off the bees' legs. And beekeepers will collect that pollen and dry it and then sell it to uh, health food stores and things. I'm sure you've seen um, bottles in natural food stores. You can buy your bee pollen. And what is the nutritional value of that? Does, does it have well, any for, value for humans? It does, certainly with some amino acids and some trace elements of different vitamins um, and minerals. But, you know, it's going to be dependent upon um, the flower source of that pollen. Uh, but a lot of people like to take the bee pollen for energy and things. But you do, again, want to be careful uh, if you have uh, any pollen allergies of taking ex additional bee pollen. But some people just, you know, it's, it's the pollen from flowers. It's a protein source. Now, how do you separate the the honey itself from the beeswax, from the honeycomb? Right. Well, there um, certainly people can go to any beekeeping supplier uh, on the Internet, and you'll see all the different equipment we have for beekeepers. And uh, one of them is called an extractor. So you take out this frame of honey, and uh, – you have to cut the wax capping off because the bees always seal it. Again, this is their, what they think is their stored food. Um, so they cap it off so that nothing can get in it and it doesn't evaporate anymore or pick up any other moisture. So they cap it. So we have to take a hot knife and cut the cappings off, which are wax. So that's wax that we use for other purposes. So we cut off the cappings. Then we put this uh, frame into really a, a big um, round drum, and we have a crank on it where we spin the frames really, really fast using centrifugal force to force the honey out of these cells. And this is the by doing this, we're keeping the frame in good uh, uh, good health in the sense of we're not breaking it, you're not destroying, you're not crushing the the uh, bee beeswax so that you could either melt that beeswax down that made up the honeycomb, or you can put it back in the hive right away for them to fill it up again if you're on a uh, nectar um, bloom. You know, say the uh, poppies are all in bloom and you, you, they filled up one frame, you want to put it back in the hive for them to fill up another one. Uh, so by using centrifugal force, that honey gets thrown out to the sides of the drum. It runs down the side of the drum um, into uh, a buckets or a tank. Uh, where we then um, can filter the honey just to make to get out any wax pieces or uh, bee body parts, and um, then we can bottle the honey. Now, there's no need to pasteurize the honey to heat the honey in any way, is there? Well, there's some people do, but there it's by law you do not have to. You can there so you'll find raw honey um, or not raw honey. So if it doesn't say it was raw honey, then it has been heated, um, but no more, no higher than really the temperature of the beehive, which is typically kept at about 95 degrees. So, um, and it, if it is heated, it's just to make it flow faster, <clears throat> pardon me, for uh, bottling, because different water um, moisture contents of each honey, it's either a more fluid honey or it's a thicker honey. So if it's a thicker honey, that's less moisture. If it's a really loose, thin honey, it's going to flow faster. So, But most beekeepers really do not pasteurize. Uh, they bottle raw local honey, and they will call it that. Now, there are some folks out there still trying to say they have organic honey, and they really can't because of the flight range of bees. There is no way a beekeeper can guarantee that a bee has not come into contact with pesticides. And people who are, for example, in an urban environment, there's no way that you would know what kind of flowers the bee had access to, right? Uh, correct, yeah. Is there a concern for urban 
honey that it might have toxins in it? Is, is that an issue? Well, there's a concern that there's toxins in all the honey. It doesn't matter where. <clears throat> Pardon me. That actually in some urban areas, the honey has less pesticides than out in the agricultural area in the fact of, for kind of this reason. Many cities um, do not have the budgets to use a lot of pesticides, whether it's for mosquito control or herbicides for weed control. So by not having the budget to spray a lot of pesticides, some urban bees experience less pesticide exposure, except when you throw in some home gardeners that love their chemicals. And then the bees can be exposed to your neighbor who is spraying pesticides all over their backyard, either for the a healthy looking grass, they think, um, but there are those folks with the lawn care chemicals. Bees get into the pesticides from lawn care chemicals, drift onto anything in bloom, and make it detrimental to the bees. As well as, you know, we have issues with mosquito control pesticides that are used inappropriately and uh, poorly that can then impact bees. So it doesn't really matter where you are, agricultural or urban. The bees and their plants and their habitat are exposed to pesticides, and that includes insecticides, herbicides, and fungicides. There's also the idea that having honey could trigger allergies for people who are prone to allergies, that because the bees have procured the nectar and processed it, but the, the source basically is a plant source, which is what triggers allergies in many people, that the honey brings the allergies with it. Um, what do you think about that? Well, certainly it can based on the amount of pollen. It's not necessarily that people are allergic to the nectar. They're allergic to the pollen of some plants, so it will set things off. But people also confuse what they are allergic to. Even in my community, Years ago, they said that uh, noxious weeds were goldenrod and milkweed, and they didn't want those planted. Well, now we have a different view in that goldenrod is not a wind-borne pollen, but people assume that when the ragweed also blooms at the same time as the goldenrod, that they blame goldenrod along with ragweed. And ragweed is wind-blown pollen. So that's what makes people get all uh, have allergic reactions. But it is not goldenrod. Goldenrod does not blow on the wind. It does so it's not out there um, causing all of our uh, human sinuses to suddenly um, you know start running and our eyes to itch. So we were conflating one plant blooming at the same time as another, and then blaming the one that the pollen did not fly in the air. So when people have allergic reactions, especially to pollen, it is typically those wind blown pollens. It's a lot of the trees and the grasses. But it is not necessarily the flowers that pollinators go to. Those flowers, if they, if it was wind blown pollen on those flowers, those flowers would not need pollinators because the wind is pollinating the other plants. So the plants that must be pollinated by pollinators, whether it's birds, bats, or insects, the pollen does not float on the wind. They need those critters to reproduce those plants. So if someone would ingest some honey that had a lot of pollen in it from a specific plant that then they were allergic to, they could be allergic to it. Certainly, just like all of us can get, I'm allergic to barley. I have no idea why, <laughs> but I am. And it's the only grain. Who knows? Have you heard of honey being a common source of allergies because I had never come across that until I started reading about honey and its benefits and then I read that some people say they have allergies to the honey. Yeah, I, I disagree with that one uh, com uh, completely. Again, if it's pollen related based on the pollen, if they are allergic and, and truly just a spoonful of honey makes them ill, they certainly can go, I would encourage, go to an allergist, find out what's up. Um, because it may, and if they're eating it with something else, it might be one thing is triggering another. Um, and they're just making that comparison rather like ragwood and ragweed and goldenrod blooming at the same time. Because, you know, certainly it's the pollens in the honey. It is not the honey itself. 
because the honey is made up of natural sugars and pollen from the various flowers. And it's just, I, I can't imagine it's a deep enough concentration, but again, if a person is suffering, I encourage them to find medical um, medical care for that. But it may also be, check out the honey. Is it local honey? Is it uh, honey from the United States? So you want plants from where you live. You want um, local honey from your community, which narrows it down even closer to where you live. And make sure it is truly honey. There are far too many honeys on the counters in our grocery stores that are not honey. They are a mix of rice syrup or corn syrup, or it's a mix of honeys from three different countries, and not and one of those countries is not the U.S. So I don't know what they're putting in the honeys in other countries, which might be why someone is getting sick. To go back to the initial question, what is honey made of? Then if I'm understanding correctly, it's the nectar and the pollen from the plant, from the flower, along with the enzymes in the bees that are carrying the nectar and the pollen that are processing, as it were, the nectar and that eventually converts it to honey? Well, yes. And I I think you're um, maybe making it too hard. (laughs) Bees are a simple creature. They go to the flower, they get the nectar. They put it in their honey stomach. They then transfer it from their honey stomach to another bee at the door of the hive who takes it up and puts it in a wax cell in the hive. So that that plant sugar is about 17% water, and it's mostly fructose and glucose. And it does have some uh, certainly some proteins, some enzymes, vitamins, and minerals, but it's such trace amounts. Um, it also can contain up to 18 different amino acids. So you're going to have that mix of different floral sources in a cell that then across about 3,600 cells is going to make up a frame of honey. But can you have honey that is made in any other way? In other words, are the honeybees essential to the honey? Is it even though the enzymes in the honeybees are in such small amounts, are they not essential to the honey-making process? Oh, correct. They're the only ones who make honey. You know, this is, this is one of the things I think people often forget when they hear about different bees, whether it's bumblebees or sweat bees or uh, the mason digger bees. The first part of the name tells you what that bee does. So a mason bee uh, digs things. Um, the bumblebees are big and bumbly. But that's why it's two words. A honeybee is a bee that makes honey. That's all it is. That is its purpose. It makes honey. It goes to the plants and it makes honey. It makes excess honey so that humans can eat it. While bumblebees make some honey that's only for that year's generation in their uh, nest in the ground. It's not something that any beekeeper can get honey from. That is strictly a nectar produced product for the next generation of bumblebees. So honeybees make honey. You will not get honey from anything else. Now, beekeeping as a business has become very popular. It's divided into commercial beekeepers and hobbyists. Is that an accurate description? Um, It is. It's actually, there's a third group in there. There's what's called sideliner beekeepers. So a commercial beekeeper typically has more than 300 hives. And there are some commercial beekeepers in this country, they make up about, well, less than 3% of the total beekeepers. But they own uh, more than 80% of all the beehives. So you have to keep that in mind. In order for a commercial beekeeper to make enough money pollinating crops and to make a honey crop and to make their sole living from that, they have to have certainly... uh, more than 300 hives. Many of them, kind of the minimum is a couple of thousand. Uh, we have one beekeeper that uh, on occasion has 100,000 hives. So that they, those commercial beekeepers are also migratory beekeepers in that they take their hives, they put them on semi-trucks, and they travel to the different crops that are in bloom to pollinate them. So the pollinating season starts in February out in almonds. 
because it takes almost 2 million hives just to pollinate the almond crop here in the United States. And the almonds we grow here are, I think, 80% of the world's almond crop. They're grown in the Central Valley out in California. And so about February, second week of February to early March, 2 million colonies are out in almonds, and that's all the bees have to eat. So, but those bees have to be trucked in to pollinate the almond trees. It's the only way to do it. That's the only way you get little almonds is for the bees to pollinate them. And then when the almond bloom is done, those two million hives have to be moved out immediately or the bees will starve to death because nothing else is in bloom around the almonds. So those almond, those beekeepers then move maybe from almonds, they'll go up to Oregon and Washington to pollinate apples. And then they might move back this way toward Maine and Michigan and New England states and pollinate cranberries and blueberries. Some may go down south to pollinate oranges. Some may go over toward cotton. So they're constantly moving around the state, kind of following the bloom of the different crops. And without those bees, we would not have those crops. Now, sideliner beekeepers have usually, oh, 150 to 300 hives. And um, they it's a sideline business for them. So they may only do some crop pollination around their own state and uh, they do crop pollination and honey production but it's just that they still have a day job and then backyard beekeepers like me many of us like to be called backyard beekeepers now and not hobbyists um, one beekeeper described it to me as uh, he's not he doesn't knit and crochet that's a hobby <laughs> beekeeping is uh, not a hobby really anymore it truly is it's a backyard it means you're a stationary beekeeper um, it's too expensive of uh, an activity to call it really a hobby. So, so those three types of beekeepers are out there. The backyard folks have really taken off. Uh, about east of the Mississippi, we probably have almost 200,000 backyard beekeepers. So that the backyard folks outnumber the commercial guys as individuals, but it's the commercial guys that still have about 80% of all of the hives in the United States. And there's what, about 2,000 of the commercial beekeepers? Yeah, probably, yes, at the most. So how many sideliner beekeepers? Oh, we don't really have a strong number on that one. Um, it's And it's in between, certainly, um, I would say it's probably no more than 5%. I had read somewhere that when the bees come into contact with plants that have been modified, genetically modified to be resistant to pesticides, they die. Is that accurate? Uh, I have not read that research. I know that, again, like with all of the modified plants, we will even modify plants for uh, beauty, for size of the bloom, and usually what happens when, when we play God with plants, um, we basically uh, change the nectary and we change the pollen output. So by changing the nectary, you will then affect the pollinators that go to that plant um, so that it's not going to get pollinated well. And the seed may not spread well from that because the bees can't get to the nectar source. If it's less nectar in the plant now, or if it's changed the position of the nectary. Now, with some with some plants, I think where you're really talking of if a bee dies when it goes to it, those would be plants exposed to systemic pesticides like neonicotinoids and uh, neonics for short. And certainly, that's one of the things we are working on to try and get a moratorium on neonics. They have been in the environment for more than 15 years. And the, it's labeled they are bee toxic. So if you apply it in a foliar application with these neonics and put it on a blooming plant, yes, you will kill bees. You'll kill a lot of insects. And we, we must remember bees are chewing, sucking insects. That's what they do. They chew up the pollen to sometimes get it out of the plant or when they eat it in their hive, and they suck up the nectar. Now, when they go to a plant that has been exposed to neonics and the neonics got into the soil 
the plant pulls up that toxin of the neonics into its vascular system and then exudes it through its pollen and nectar. So if a bee goes to a plant that has been exposed to neonics, the bee will die. They will pick up enough of that and they either start to lose their memory, forget what they're supposed to do, they start to get sick, um, they take that, um, even if it's a sublethal level of nectar laced with the neonics back to the hive, it will affect the entire hive because those neonics then start to spread across the wax out of the cell and start to infect the uh, other nectar that's there. And then you get enough of this nectar that has is laced with neonics and it builds up to a lethal level and then you've killed the hive. And how common is that? Oh, far too common. We, we use neonics in far too many things. Um, and the um, EPA has recently released um, sufoxiflor, which is like a neonic. It's really the same thing. <laughs> it's still a systemic. Anytime you use a systemic pesticide that is bee toxic, you will kill bees because it's in the vascular system of the plant. So that toxin is exuded through the pollen and nectar. It's meant to kill chewing, sucking insects that might damage the plant. But we forget that our pollinators are also chewing, sucking insects. So they will, they are exposed to these neonics, this bee toxic pesticide, as well as the pests to the crop. And this is not just for the honeybees, but this is for all the pollinators? Oh, yes, all of them are affected. And as we kill off the beneficials, trying to deal with less than 3% of pests that attack humans and crops. In doing these prophylactic blanket applications of pesticides, we are killing the very beneficial insects that would eat those pests. There's a gentleman out in North Dakota, Dr. Jonathan Lundgren, who is doing some wonderful work at Blue Dasher Farm. And he has been really examining what is in the soil. They've been finding dozens of species of parasitic wasps that live in the soil in crop fields and in, in healthy soils, that their sole purpose is for them to reproduce, a tiny little parasitic wasp, hence its name, will lay an egg on a pest. And as that egg develops, it kills that pest. It's a wonderful pest control method, but we must allow these beneficial insects to live. And by trying to kill some white flies and thrips, you're killing off all of the very critters that could control those pests. And by taking away that food source, we're reducing our population of birds. There was a recent study that came out that we are, I think we lost nearly 30% of birds. And it's because we're taking away the insects. And Everything, also their habitats, right? And, and their habitat as well. By using herbicides the way we are using them, by developing land and all we do is put back grass. Grass doesn't feed anything. Grass is a wasteland. And all we do is contribute to uh, carbon emissions by mowing it every week or using a gas-powered weed whacker every week. All we are doing is um, if we apply lawn chemicals, all those things do is run right off and go into the streams and rivers and then cause algae blooms. We need to reassess how we use our land uh, because it needs to be productive. It needs to absorb water, all the flooding we're now having after some heavy rains. Pollinator habitat absorbs water. I never have to water my pollinator habitat because it takes care of itself. It provides enough water. It can cope when there's a drought. And we've had a drought here the past month or so. And it's uh, still blooming because the roots get in there and they make that soil healthy and they absorb and hold on to water. I don't have any water runoff of what was my front yard because now it's all pollinator habitat. So I'm helping to protect Lake Erie because I don't use any chemicals at all on my lawn. Thankfully, my neighbors don't. But it is these, it's, it's the little things each of us do. We cannot blame one aspect in any area for how pesticides are running off or the damage we're causing bees. It, it, it is all of us and all of us can take action to make change. Who are the 
backyard beekeepers because it sounds, at least in terms of the number of people that are involved, that that's the largest group of people, even if the quantities that they're producing individually are small, in terms of overall numbers, that that 200,000 seems to be the largest number, right? Yeah. So who are these people? Are these people who have a day job and they look after bees on the weekends to generate extra revenue? Uh, Well, really, it's not about making money. It is about the enjoyment of getting in touch with nature. It's about um, looking at this box of insects that are so creative and industrious, and they've got it all worked out, and look at this wonderful product that they develop. It's about the fellowship with other beekeepers to talk about nature and to learn about flowers and to learn about trees. Usually when a beekeeper first becomes a beekeeper, they start buying a lot of plants. <laughs> they put in lots of trees or they stop cutting down trees because they know the value of these plants to their bees. So they get in touch with nature. They enjoy the um, – sometimes it can seem like solitude or that communing with your bees. Um, because it's, uh, people want to get back in touch with nature and with agriculture. Uh, you know, the whole movement for people to have chickens in their backyards now. No roosters, just chickens, because they want the fresh eggs and they want the chickens that will also help control pests. Chickens are great to, you know, eat ticks and other things. They, yeah, they'll, they'll keep your yard clean to pests. So it's, it's that connection to nature. Many of the folks, yes, all have a day job, so you would be, it's not even a sideline for them. In a sense, it would be like kind of a hobby, but some people just don't, don't call me a hobbyist. So. Now, the whole concept of what comes to my mind when I think of a beekeeper is someone who is having to wear a special outfit in order to have any kind of interaction with the bees. That's the stereotype. Is that accurate? It is. You certainly do want to wear what's called a bee suit. It's typically, uh, now there are some beekeepers that just wear a long sleeve shirt and a veil. I know when my father tended his bees, um, he just wore a, be- a veil, and even if a bee would sting him, he, he was a tough old guy, what can I say? <laughs> so, But um, you always want to wear a veil, because even when you open a hive, that hive still sees you as a predator because you're exhaling uh, carbon dioxide, and that's what a bear will also exhale. So if a, and a bear is a, a, a big predator of beehives, it will rip a hive apart and nothing flat to get at the brood. Bears are not going for the honey. They're going for the brood. They want the eggs because that's a better protein source. So, so the bears, um, sorry to interrupt, the bears don't eat the honey? No, they really, you know, they'll, they'll eat some of it, but that's not their sole focus. They want the brood. They want the, they want the baby bees. Because it's a better protein source. It's just we always think of, you know, the Yogi Bear thing, I've got to have the honey. Yeah, that's they're really not right. But going back to um, the, the beekeeping suit. So you always want to wear a veil to protect your eyes because, again, as you exhale carbon dioxide, the bees go, uh, you're not one of us. And they will always go for the eyes of any predator because that is, you know, a sensitive point. But most beekeepers will also wear a full bee suit which is just kind of a heavy canvas fabric um, that's a little poofy. You know, it's not form-fitting so that if a bee lands on it and does try to sting you, they're not really reaching you. What is the initial investment for someone who's listening to us and says, oh, I kind of like the sound of that, communing with nature, having my own source of bee, that sounds like a good idea. How much knowledge and how much how many resources, budget and time-wise, are necessary to start as a backyard beekeeper? Right. Well, certainly to become a backyard beekeeper and to take up any type of, in a sense, agriculture or animal husbandry, you want to learn about it. And the best way to start is to go just Google in your state, State Beekeeping Association for your state, whether it's California or Michigan, or Maine, or Ohio, Google your state beekeeping association, find a local bee club near you, and find out when their beginning bee class is. Take the bee class first. Before you go and get beehives and get equipment, take a beginning bee class first and make sure you can do it. You've got the space for it. Your family is aware it's going to take time for you to do it. Um, It might be messy. 
Um, men, make sure uh, you're not allergic. I have encountered a couple beekeepers that took a bee class. They thought they were fine, and they got their they put in their package of bees. The hive was doing great, and then somebody in the family discovered they were allergic to bees. So then they had to find a beekeeper and go, I'm sorry, can you take all this away from me now? So you want to make sure you've got the time and the money. It can be upwards of $1,000 just to get started because you've got to buy the wooden ware, which are the wood boxes plus the frames. You've got to buy the bee suit. You've got to buy equipment, which is things like hive tools. You're going to have to buy uh, different things to manage for pests and diseases. Um, you'll have to buy the extracting equipment. So it's best if you start with a bee class at your local club first, get connected with other beekeepers, make sure you can do it, you want to understand it, um, do not buy the stuff ahead of time, and please do not look at anybody's stuff on YouTube about beekeeping until you've gone to a class and you've met other beekeepers, because you will misinterpret what you might see in a YouTube video. There are some horrible ones on YouTube of beekeeping videos. There are some good ones, but you need to go to a class first before you take up putting 80,000 bees into a beehive on your backyard. Because the key thing is, are you allowed to have bees in your community? Some communities have bee ordinances where, in a sense, it states you can't have bees. We hear about these Africanized bees that are particularly aggressive. Do they have anything to do with the honeybees? Well, they are honeybees. They're just Africanized honeybees. They are from Africa. So certainly in Africa, there are beekeepers that work those Africanized bees. It's just a different way of working them. Now, the Africanized bees are really in the south and out west. So for me here in Ohio, even if for some reason some somebody would get a uh, an Africanized um, colony up in my neck of the woods, it's going to die off in the winter because they can't cope with winter, like the European honeybees, which experience the same uh, winters, summer, winter, fall, spring that we do here in the States. The Africanized bees are very much for that um, climate. So when we do get them in this country, and we do, the Africanized bees moved up out of South America, and they are here, and there are beekeepers that will manage them, and there are some differences with them. They seem to swarm more. Uh, which means the hive will split and they'll make two queens and go, okay, some of you go there and some of us will stay here. Um, so they are typically a smaller hive, but they are very aggressive, such that even if they hear you drive up and there's vibrations from that vehicle, they go, uh-oh, somebody's here, let's go out and see. And it's not one or two that comes out to see. It's a lot of them. Unlike my hive, when I open my hive, um, I maybe have one or two bees that come up and go, oh, it's just you. And that's it. They don't send out the alarm to the rest of the hive that I'm this horrible predator and I'm doing bad things. So with Africanized bees, everybody's a predator and everybody's going to uh, get their nasty attitude. But there are beekeepers that work them out in the southwest and in the south. Which is the top producing or which are the top producing states in terms of honey, in terms oh. of quantities, in terms of quality? We haven't even talked about quality. Right. Well, and the thing is, that's going to vary uh, based on uh, droughts, based on rain, based on the crops in bloom. Um, so, I, you know, and where the beekeeper lives, because you could have. Pennsylvania beekeepers that are producing um, hundreds of pounds of thousands of pounds of honey, but it's simply because that's where their address is. Meanwhile, they went around the entire country producing that very honey. So that you can find that information, certainly if you go to a magazine like Bee Culture Magazine or American Beekeeping Journal, and they will have honey reports um, across the country that the USDA uh, provides, I believe, quarterly. Uh, but it, it does vary per state. And people have to um, register, in a sense, or, or tell those people at USDA who are doing the surveys, this is how much honey we had. But any state agriculture department typically has um, numbers of how much honey is produced in that state. Are there states that stand out 
for the quality of their honey production or for the diversity of the honey that's particularly sought out? Well, again, that's, um, you know, there are people that like basswood honey, and that's only grown in certain states. There are people that like the clover honeys, um, avocado honey. So if it's an avocado honey, it's only grown in certain places. Um, certainly if you're going for the wildflower honeys, uh, it just, it kind of depends on where you are. So there really isn't, say, Texas honey, uh, and that you know it is that. You're going to have the different crops within Texas that might stand out. And you've got some state beekeeping associations that have tried to promote specific honeys for their regions. But it, again, it's not say, let's just only get Ohio honey. Yeah, it's, it really is geared toward that, as you had mentioned before, the, the floral source. And for those folks who want a mono floral source, but again, it's going to be majority floral source, not really just the one. Um, because we're doing so many things with honey now. People are infusing it with cinnamon and orange oils and, and so many different flavors, um, different herbs or spices. You can get creamed honey. You can get creamed honey that has flavors. You know, so it's so many different things you can do with honey or putting honey in things. Out in Colorado, uh, where, um, you know, marijuana was first legal, they were putting marijuana in honey. Um, so it's... You can do a lot of things with honey because it's a wonderful product to bake with as well. It can be a replacement for sugar. Because of the floral source of a honey, it can change the flavor of uh, muffins you're making or a pie. Clearly, we've run out of time before we run out of questions. Where can our listeners go to get a greater understanding about honey and beekeeping. Are there sources that you would recommend? And for those who want to know more about how to protect pollinators, what suggestions would you share for people who want to know more about honey, beekeeping, and pollinators? Right. Well, certainly there is in the United States the National Honey Board, and you can easily put that into your Internet uh, browser, just the National Honey Board. They have recipes about honey, and they have um, certainly some brief histories and, and uh, even information on medical uses of honey. So you can go to the National Honey Board. Certainly our uh, website, we have a variety of information connecting you with bee clubs, with beekeeping. Even if maybe some 4-H students are interested in beekeeping, you can go to my website at uh, pollinatorstewardship.org. There's also certainly, as I mentioned, uh, Bee Culture Magazine is a nice resource, as well as the American Beekeeping Federation. Uh, so that you can check out really anything beekeeping related, but I do encourage anyone interested in beekeeping, start with your state association first, because that is the best place to meet your local beekeepers, find out the local issues with bees, because everybody's a little different. Even in Ohio, we have different areas. Well, half the state is two weeks ahead of the other half of the state, just based on the climate. So it's going to be slightly delayed beekeeping because of how the climate is impacting uh, beekeeping management. So I encourage people check with your local and state associations of beekeeping and start with them first. Stay off of YouTube. <laughs> I can't say that enough. Stay off of YouTube uh, for beekeeping because you're just, it's just not the place to learn it. You want to go to a local club. Check out certainly my website at pollinatorstewardship.org. Uh, and for more information about honey, there is the National Honey Board. Michelle, thank you for joining us from Akron, Ohio. Well, this is wonderful. I've enjoyed speaking with you, and thank you very much. And to our audience, you have been listening to Michelle Colopy, who is Program Director at the Pollinator Stewardship Council, who discussed honey and beekeeping. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicNPR.com. That's editor at HispanicNPR.com. 